0: Genesis chapter 6, and we'll be looking at the first eight verses uh, together. If you would, read along with me, beginning there in verse 1. When man began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh, his days shall be a hundred and twenty years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of man, and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. In spite of my weaknesses as a speaker and a preacher, in spite of our weaknesses as hearers and listeners, Lord, that you would inter- intervene on our behalf today, that you would help us to see the text rightly and to understand the truth that you have for us here. Lord, that we would be changed by the power of your word. God, I pray now that you would guard us from error, uh, that if anything is said here today, Lord, that is, is not according to your word, that you would just, in your, your goodness, allow us to just hear it and, and let it go on past us, Lord, that everything that we would hear today would be true according to your word uh, and that we would indeed leave this place changed. Lord, I pray now that the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts would be pleasing and acceptable before you. And it's in your Son's holy name that I pray. Amen. Uh, this passage that we come to today presents... Uh, several uh, difficulties, some some things that we see here in the passage that are hard to uh, understand. Uh, There are certain things here that we can uh, only speculate about. There are certain things that we find here in the passage that really we we can't know with any sense of certainty what we are considering, um, what the writer has in mind, and we'll address some of those things here in a moment. Uh, But what is clear from these eight verses uh, is what we see in Romans 5, 20, where sin increases, God's grace abounds all the more. I want us to break this passage up into two parts today, and I want us to begin by looking at verses 1 through 5, where we see the result of the fall is great wickedness filling the earth. Verse 1 continues this theme of multiplication and filling the earth that we've seen so often in the first five chapters of Genesis. Uh, man continues to multiply and fill the earth. And right away in verse 2, we come to uh, one of the um, parts of the passage that is somewhat complicate, complicated, somewhat difficult for us to understand. In fact, there are three uh, primary things here that we, we see that are difficult for us to grasp. And the first one there in verse two is, who are the sons of God and who are the daughters of man? Now, there are three primary ways that we can interpret this, and all three of these options are viable. They're good ways for us to look at the text. One of the ways, which is the oldest way, is to see this as the sons of God being some sort of angelic being uh, who has come and is intermarrying with the daughters of man. Uh, In fact, the word sons of God is only used a handful of times in Scripture, and mostly it is used to speak of angels, so this is a good uh, option for us. Uh, Another option is to to translate verse 2 through an idea that is called the royal line, where we see the sons of God being ancient rulers in, in this ancient time who marry commoners, Uh, So if you were here a a few weeks ago for our Wednesday night uh, prayer time, we looked at Psalm 82.6, where God, in speaking to the rulers of the the nations, he calls them gods with a little g. uh, That all the rulers and all the authorities in this world have been placed there under the sovereign hand of god and they are in a sense little gods working out his work in this world and so we could potentially see these sons of god as being these uh, ancient rulers these mighty men this is also an intriguing interpretation The third interpretation that we can take here, and this is the one that I will hold to, again, with a little bit of certainty, this is just where I'm going to land, is that this is the godly line. The writer has put a lot of emphasis on the line of the seed, and a lot of interpretation we've already done in Genesis 1 through 4 has dealt with that, uh, particularly how we viewed the line of Cain in verse 17 of chapter 4. And so the sons of God potentially could be the line of Seth, and the daughters of man would be uh, the line of Cain. So you have the seed of promise and the seed of the serpent um, intermarrying between each other. And so regardless of what interpretation you take here, you can pick, study up on it later if you want, what is clear here is that all of these interpretations allow for the same understanding, and that is this. There is some sort of perversion taking place in God's created order. We see perversion happening here in the world. The second difficulty that we come to then is in verse 3, where God speaks for the first time since chapter 4. And the difficulty is not so much with what he says in the first part, my spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. We've already seen, as we did last week, that death is coming. As the writer communicated eight times that these men all died, death is coming, we will all return to the dust. But what are these 120 years that he speaks of? Again, uh, there is some uh, difficulty here in understanding exactly what's happening. Is, is verse 3 a result of verses 1 and 2? Uh, is verse 3 simply speaking of God's providential work and timing in the world? Is uh, before the flood, as we saw last week in chapter 5, we didn't really talk about this, but hopefully you noticed it, these guys lived a long time, 930 years, 912 years, whereas after the flood, the lifespan is a lot shorter We don't have time to go into all the theories and and speculation as to why this is. We can affirm that it is all in the sovereignty of God, but some people will take the 120 years there in verse 3 and see it as God setting a limit on the amount of time that man will live on the earth after this point. This is a, a valid interpretation. The second interpretation, which is again what I will hold to, is that this 120 years speaks to a season of God's patient forbearance before the flood. And so we most certainly see a time between these words being spoken, building of the ark, and the flood coming. So there is a season, and I I think potentially it would be this 120 years. Either way, again, wherever you fall on interpreting this, here is what is clear about verse 3 First, God is the one who numbers our days. He is the one who brings about life, and he is the one who ordains death. Death is coming, and he is the one who numbers our days. Secondly, though, we see here in verse 3 that there is a set time to repent and believe, And so if that time is is a lifespan before you die or if it is before Christ returns, there is a, a reminder for us this morning that there is only a moment, only a season for us to repent and believe the gospel. And so if you are here today and you are wrestling with who Jesus is and whether or not you should put your faith and trust in him and repent of your sins and become a follower of Jesus, do not wait. The coming of the Lord will be swift, and he will bring his judgment when he comes again. And it might be in 120 years, it might be in 120 weeks, it might be in 120 seconds. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ now and be saved. Do not wait. The third difficulty then that we see is this word in verse 4, the Nephilim. This is confusing. I will be completely transparent with you. I have no earthly idea what or who the Nephilim are. And any scholar or commentator who has any grasp of the text uh, will communicate the same thing. We just don't know. It's not clear. But there's something helpful here for us in the word Nephilim as we consider how we study the Bible. Uh, You have heard me say on several occasions that we believe in the perspicuity of Scripture, that Scripture is clear. And so, in the essentials of faith and practice, a child could read the word of God and know with certainty what it is saying. Now, the perspicuity of Scripture does not mean that every word and sentence and phrase are completely clear. We come to phrases in Scripture that are difficult for us to understand. And so, how do we interpret them? Well, we interpret them through Scripture, Scripture interprets Scripture. But sometimes there are things like the word Nephilim that we just cannot know with any type of certainty who they are or what they are. We really don't have much to go on. Uh, We see here in the passage that they are already on the earth when this intermarrying of verse 2 happens, and so uh, they're probably not a result of this intermarrying, although some people would interpret it that way. Uh, The word Nephilim comes from the Hebrew word to fall, so there's Uh, kind of a negative sense to this name, and we only see the name Nephilim one other time in Scripture, and that's in Numbers 13, when the Israelite spies go into the promised land, and they see giants there that make them feel like grasshoppers, And, and so they don't want to enter into the promised land, and there they call them the Nephilim. So we see the Nephilim mentioned in Scripture after the flood, So potentially this is some sort of distortion, again, of God's creative order, and and we're reminded here that even from the line of Noah, the seed of promise, that great corruption comes into our world. Maybe the name Nephilim is only used in Numbers 13 as a name that is given to giants. Whatever they are, whoever they are, they seem to represent the wickedness in the land. Distortion, evil, evil. The Nephilim are a source of doubt and distraction for the people of God. It emphasizes how the people of God must trust in his promises and in the line of the seed. Are they going to trust in the seed of the woman or are they going to follow the wickedness of the Nephilim? And we too in this place today are reminded to seek God first in all of our relationships. And so children who are here today, as you go to school and you make friends, as a follower of Jesus, are you surrounding yourself with people who help you look more like Jesus? Or are you surrounding yourself with people who make you look more like the world? That's a hard question for a young person to consider, but it's important this morning, kids. Those of you who are seeking to be married in your dating relationship or your courting relationship, Are you looking for someone who's not only a professing believer in Christ, but someone who has a desire to run the race with endurance, who has their eyes set on Jesus, the author and perfecter of their faith, who will make you look more and more like Jesus each and every day, who walks with the Lord as Enoch walked? These are important things for us to consider. So... We deal with some uncertainty here in these three things. Sons of God, 120 years, the Nephilim. But what is very clear about the passage is in verse 5. This is the heart of the passage. Verse 5 says, The Lord saw. Usually these words in the Old Testament, precede divine intervention, a moment where God is about to intervene directly on his creation to bring about his will. Another example of this we see in Exodus 2.25 where the people are in bondage in Egypt and they cry out to God and it says there in the text, God saw. And we know what God did there in Egypt. He comes and he most certainly intervenes on behalf of his people to bring them out of bondage and slavery. But here it says the Lord saw two things. He saw the wickedness of man was great in all the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. We see here very clearly the contrast between what God saw before the fall when he looked upon creation, and what did he say? He, he saw it, and it was good. Now, after the fall, he looks and he sees wickedness and corruption and evil in the world. This is the fall. This is the curse. This is the brokenness of the world in which we still live in today. The writer tells us a little bit more in detail using these words exactly what's happening. It speaks there of Every intention. This word intention means idea, to mold something as a potter does. And so we talked about how being created in God's image, part of that is we have the ability to create. And the writer is telling us here that the the people were using even their creative abilities for nothing but evil. It speaks then there of the thoughts of man. These are the plans The thinking ahead, the premeditated ideas of man, thinking about what he will do tomorrow and the next day and in the years to come, all of his thoughts and plans are set on evil only. And it is at the heart of man, the thoughts of his heart. In the English language, we think of the heart as expressing emotion, but in Hebrew, it speaks of the desire and the thoughts. And so what the writer is telling us here in this one verse in verse five is that every idea, every plan, every desire, every thought, every affection of man was evil, set on things that God disapproves of. There is no other Old Testament verse that is more explicit about the sinfulness and depravity of man as we find here in Genesis chapter six, verse five. Before we come to faith in Christ, we are totally depraved, totally sinful. Each and every one of us, as the seed of Adam, coming out of Adam, are born with this nature. And total depravity does not mean that we are as wicked as we could be. It simply means that all of our thoughts, our attitudes, and our affections are corrupted completely by sin. This also doesn't mean that Fallen people and sinful people can't love their family. Fallen people most certainly are able to love their family and do kind things and contribute positively to society and the common grace of God. And we most certainly have the ability to choose in our fallen nature, but the problem is is we will never choose created God. In our sinful state, we will always choose self. We will always choose the created over the creator. We will choose sin time and time again. And even the good works that we do are rooted in selfishness and pride. Our good works are seen as filthy rags before a holy God. And so we learn something important here, that salvation cannot come by our own efforts. God must intervene on our behalf. And so all of verses 1 through 5 is saying is this, we are all sinners in desperate need of deliverance. This brings us then to the final three verses, verses 6 through 8, where we see that man's wickedness breaks the heart of God and demands justice, a justice that is only pardoned by God's grace. You look there at verse 6, in verse 6 we first see God's pain It says, God was sorry and he was grieved. What do these two words mean? It's important. First is the word sorry. Interestingly, the word sorry reflects the words of Lamech, Noah's father in chapter 5, verse 29. Remember this from last week, where Lamech prayed out of the ground that the Lord has cursed. This one shall bring us relief or rest or comfort. This root word in the Hebrew is the same word that is used for the word sorry here in verse 6. And so the writer is helping us to see something here. Instead of God comforting the people, rather he is sorry that he made them. And this, too, gets to the heart of the passage. Alan Ross, uh, one of the commentators I read, said this, Men and women are so desperately wicked that they grieve God's heart to the extent that rather than comfort them, God will destroy them. Lamech's hope for rest corresponds with God's regret with his creation. Now, people at this point, skeptics, will say, well, the word regret, some of your translations say sorry, some of your translations say that God changed his mind. If you're reading the King James this morning, it says that the Lord repented. And people will say, isn't this communicating an impulsive God, a, a fickle God, a God who is changeable? Raising questions about the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man that we have talked about already in this sermon series are not at odds in the economy of God. People raising into question the immutability of God, the fact that God is unchanging throughout all of time and space, asking questions like, how can God be unchanging? And then the text tells us here that he repents. We need to understand here that the writer is simply using human terms with with their limited scope to communicate something about a God who is incomprehensible. To help us understand something about him. And what he wants us to see here is that God is responding appropriately to the increasing wickedness in the world according to his nature, for better or for worse. He is a covenant God. We've talked about here time and time again that he makes covenant and he keeps covenant. And a part of the covenant promise that God has made is that if you obey, I will bless you. But if you disobey, I will curse you. And we've already seen that happen here in the story of Genesis. So God has not changed in verse 6. Rather, he is simply being faithful to who he promised to be. He is responding in perfect accord with his nature to the wickedness of the world. The second word that we see there that is important is the word grieved. You see it there at the end of verse six. It grieved him to his heart. This word grieved literally means felt bitterly indignant. It expresses the most intense form of human emotion. We see this word or these words used with Dinah's brothers and the feeling that they have after their their, their sister was harmed in the way that she was. The word is used of God only twice in scripture and this is the only time that it is connected with the phrase to his heart, expressing the magnitude of God's grief over sin. And so again, the skeptics will say that this shows that God is incapacitated and surprised and shocked by sin, but that is not what the writer is communicating. Rather, he is using words to communicate this, that God is broken over sin, We sense the gravity and the weight of sin, not just on the world itself, but on the very heart of creator God. Oh, that we as the people of God would have this type of grief over sin. That we would have such a grief over sin that sin would not even be named among us, as Paul said. Our prayer this morning, Lord, is that you would give us your grief over sin. So we see God's pain in verse 6, but we then see God's purpose in verse 7, that he is set to blot out man whom I have created from the face of the earth. These words here, blot out, are used to speak of wiping names off of a parchment or cleaning dishes. Uh, There's a little bit of foreshadowing here because the blotting out that God will do will also involve water as we see here in the coming chapters as he floods the earth and wipes the wickedness from the earth. We see some foreshadowing here. that He will wipe out the human race and all living creatures from the earth by water. Uh, We see the same word blotted out used in Exodus 32 where the people have been so um, just, Discouraging discouraging their, in their word and they're communicating to God after he's brought them out of Egypt by a mighty hand and they complain and they complain. And it says there in Exodus 32, God is set to blot out Israel and start again with Moses. And then Moses prays on behalf of the people and God, it says there, relents. The same word that we see here, sorry, repent. God's hurt over sin prompts him to blot out the wicked. And do not miss this. This is a catastrophic proposition, that he will wipe out all created things from the face of the earth, and he has the right and the wisdom and the power to do so. And yet, again, as we've seen time and time again in the book of Genesis, there is a glimmer of hope. Verse 8, Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Swift and dramatic judgment would come. The judgment would be delayed for a moment, potentially 120 years. But we do see here that there were some who would escape the flood by the grace of God. I read four different commentaries in preparation for this. All four of the commentators agreed on little in this passage. A lot of controversy here. But they all agreed that verse eight is completely and utterly about the grace of God. That Noah and his family received the favor of God and would be spared the judgment that was to come. Grace is receiving something we do not deserve and that something is deliverance from death. The recipients of grace deserve judgment. Noah and his family deserve this same judgment. Each and every one of us deserve this same justice from a sovereign and holy God. And yet God's people by grace alone are spared the wrath that they deserve by God's grace. Noah's family would be spared the wrath of the flood. Now, next week we'll look at verse 9. There is something to be said about Noah's faith. And his walk with the Lord, and just like last week with Enoch, we turned to Hebrews 11 and we talked about the faith of Enoch. We could, too, right now turn to Hebrews 11 and look about the faith of Noah. But here in verse 8, the writer simply tells us about the grace of God. The grace that God bestows on undeserving sinners like you and I. It is not something we are due, it is not something we can earn, it is a free gift of God according to Ephesians chapter 2. It surpasses and abounds over all the sin of the one in which has been bestowed upon it the grace of God according to Romans 5. It is ever present in the life of the believer. It is sufficient no matter what circumstances we face according to 2 Corinthians 12. By this unmerited favor of God, we find blessing and joy. John tells us in chapter 1 of his gospel, grace upon grace. It is reserved for those who humble themselves before the cross, declaring spiritual bankruptcy and complete and utter dependence on Christ's work at the cross, according to James chapter 4. And those who find the grace of God no longer live under the dominion and power of sin according to Romans 6. Rather they live in the joy of their master, striving and working daily for obedience according to 1 Corinthians 15. And Titus tells us in Titus chapter 2 verses 11 through 14 that no one can claim to possess saving grace Who doesn't renounce ungodliness and worldly passions of this age? Do you know this grace today? A grace that is free and is not dependent on your performance or your ability to do good. It is all of God, it is free. But hear this the grace of God is not cheap, it is costly. It came at a great price and was paid at the cross by the blood of the Son of God. And if you come to know saving grace, hear me, it will cost you your life as well. I find myself burdened this week as I prepare for this passage. I'm overwhelmed by the glorious grace of verse 8, and yet I find myself Humbled under the reality that the grace of God is set in the context of a great and catastrophic judgment that is coming and will come to these people. And I wonder if we are burdened for the lost. I find myself burdened for the lost and dying world around me, but I also find myself burdened for the thousands of people who will gather in churches across this country this very morning who think that they have saving grace because they walked an aisle or prayed a prayer or signed a card or someone told them their whole life that they were a Christian and yet they do not know lord jesus christ as their master and savior scripture says in matthew chapter 7 jesus speaks of those who come before him in the end and they say lord lord did we not prophesy in your name And cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name. And then Jesus will say to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, workers of lawlessness. That is sobering. Earlier in Matthew chapter 7, Jesus speaks of the wide gate that is easy and many will enter it. Later he says there in Matthew 7, for the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. I'm afraid in our lifetime we have cheapened the grace of God. A grace that is sung about in stadiums by godless performers to godless audiences to appease their own self-righteousness. A grace that does not require repentance. A grace that does not result in obedience. A grace that sometimes does not even include Jesus himself the call to follow jesus is not one of complacency one of comfort one of health and wealth it is not a call of self-improvement or ongoing sin the call to follow jesus is a call to come and die to die to self each and every day to die to the old man and for some of us it means to die for the sake of the gospel And so just as in Noah's day, judgment was coming, so too is is judgment coming in our day. Christ will return, and he will come as a mighty warrior, and he will strike down those who stand against him. It was only those who, by God's grace, that were found in the ark who were spared. And so I ask you this morning, and I plead with you this morning to consider this Are you in the ark? Are you in Christ? This is so important. I wasn't planning on doing this, but I want us to, I need to preach a little longer, so stay with me. Will you turn with me to 1 John? If you are wrestling this morning with, whether or not you are truly saved, I want you to go home today, and I want you to read first and second and third John, because John is all about the assurance that we have and knowing we are saved. And I want us to see here, in First John chapter four verses 15, 16, and through the first part of chapter five, three questions that we must ask of ourselves this morning to see if we are in the ark. Are you in Christ today? So first John chapter four, verse 15 says this, whoever confesses that Jesus is the son of God, God abides in him and he in God. Do you confess this morning that Jesus is the son of God? Do you agree with and say the same thing as God? That's what that word confess means, to say the same thing. The word of God makes it clear that Jesus is God in flesh. Do you have faith in the Jesus of the Bible today? Not a Jesus that you have fabricated for yourself, that makes you feel better about yourself, but the Jesus of the Bible. He was a good teacher. He was a good prophet. He was a loving person, but he was also more than that. He was God in flesh. Do you confess that today? Do you confess that he died and rose from the grave and is here, Lord and Master, this day? We keep going there in verse 16. Verse 16. So we have come to know and to believe that the love of God has for us. God is love and whoever abides in in love abides in God and God abides in him. The second question, do you believe the love of God? Do you believe what you know with your head? That the love of God was demonstrated to us not by making us feel better about ourselves or allowing us to just go on in sin, but the love of God is in that he sent his son into this world as a demonstration of his love, dying in our place. It's not that we loved God, but rather that he loved us first. Do you know the love which God has for you in the cross of Christ, that he would send his son to die in your stead? a death that he did not deserve. Do you believe that today? Third and final question. Is there evidence of obedience to Christ in your life as made manifest in your love for others and primarily the church? We pick up in verse 17 of 1 John chapter 4. Listen carefully beginning in verse 17. By this is love perfected with us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment because as he is, so also are we in this world. There's no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear for fear has to do with punishment and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. Chapter 5, verse 1, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. By this, we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. Is there evidence in your life this morning that you love your brother? Is there evidence in your life this morning that you delight in and desire to keep the commandments of God? Is there evidence in your life this morning that you are walking with the Lord as Enoch did and Noah did and Abraham and Isaac and Jacob did? True Christians abide in love and desire to walk in obedience to the Lord. I'll conclude with a few verses here from 1 John. 1 John chapter 2 verse 3. By this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says I know him but does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. That's sobering. Chapter 2 verse 15. Do not love the world. Did you hear that, friend? Do not love the world. Or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Chapter 3, verse 6. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Finally, chapter 3, verse 8. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. Finally, verse 10. By this it is evident who are the children of God. And who are the children of the devil? Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Are you in Christ this morning? Have you declared spiritual bankruptcy before a holy God, saying that I am a sinner in desperate need of salvation, and I cannot do this in and of myself? I must turn in faith to the work of Christ on the cross who rose victoriously over sin and death. Make him your master today, I plead with you. I will be here at the front. I would love to pray with you and consider these things with you. This altar is open. We'll have a deacon here at the side. Do not leave this place without considering your eternity and considering the question, are you in the ark? Are you in Christ today by grace alone through faith alone in his glorious name alone? Let's pray.